All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We're really excited to dive into today's conversation. We're uh, joined across the Zoom verse by uh, the one and only Matt Enns. We used to be, I guess, kind of neighbors here in like the South Richmond, Steveston area. But uh, a few years ago, you and the fam like kicked off and have been kind of traveling around and seeing different places in the world. And uh, you're coming to us live, I guess, from Portugal now. So staying up late, burning the midnight oil to have this conversation yep. with us. So it's very, very much uh, appreciated. But really excited to, to dive in with you today and, and talk through some of the things that you, you know, are passionate about that you use um, through your your platform, definitely like Instagram and even YouTube and stuff like your platforms to share about masculinity, about the power of uh, meaningful relationships, um, how to just kind of level up and be the better version of ourselves um, for ourselves, but also for the, the people in our lives, our wives, our partners and our children. And so um, as a couple of guys who kind of those boxes are checked for us, we want to we want to lean in and say, yeah, how can we how can we continue to, to be the best version of ourselves? We've always pursued things like health and wellness and recently have been like broadening the scope to say, OK, well, what does it mean to be like full versions of who we are embracing all that we are, you know, from being yeah men to business owners to parents to yeah partners all all of those things and so we're excited to to jump in and and listen to you uh and, and share with you some of our thoughts and and um yeah just take it all in so thanks matt for joining us today amazing man that's a great introduction um i'm super excited to talk with you guys and just grateful for the opportunity so yeah. I think it'll be a great conversation. That's awesome. And and you, uh, on your Instagram, like you're a transformational men's coach. Uh, and I think that that's really cool because that's some of the stuff that we've been thinking about is like, how do we start to transform the conversation around men, uh, men's health, what masculinity is. I think over the last few years, we've heard a lot of like, uh, conversation around toxic masculinity. Um, the Me Too movement emerged and uh, I think it shed light on a lot of stuff that was not great with men and men's health or men's uh, unhealth. And it started, people started asking questions and I think as we often do, um, accusations fly and it's easy to take, you know, like a moral superiority road and point the fingers and tear people down and say why people are bad and wrong. But that often doesn't leave us anywhere better. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I was thinking about it, I looked and said one of the gaps that I noticed was the, the transition into manhood and that we have a lot of young men who are established. We have careers, we have families, but still feel kind of lost. And there's never been that, that traditional, um, like rite of passage or transition from, from boyhood into adolescence and then from adolescence into manhood. And mm -hmm. just even in the pre-pod, we were kind of jamming on it and, and it, yeah, I could see you kind of lit up. So maybe we start there and say, what, what's missing, what's happening, what's a consequence of, of the modern masculinity that we see in our world uh, and what's the link to this loss of rites of passage or transitions into the community of men? Awesome. Yeah. A million directions we can go with that one. Um, and that's a problem that I have. So do your best to keep me reined in. But um, if we start with rites of passage, you look at every historical culture that we're aware of, with the exception of us in the West today, um, placed into a massive uh, emphasis on rites of passage for young men, right? And it, it typically involved um, in some dramatized way, taking them away from women. So the men would even in some cases literally stage like a fake kidnapping and the women would go along with it and scream. And they would take the men, the young boys to a male space, some kind of a ritual space, and they would go through something that was kind of 
um, a controlled trauma of some kind, right? And this could be really extreme, like major physical pain. It could be more of a psychological thing. Um, but the point is by the end of it, they'll have gone through something more difficult than they've been through before. And they'll then after that trauma be welcomed into the man's area of the tribal, you know, setup, or they'll be somehow initiated and told, Hey, you're now one of us. You are a man now. And that psychological distinction between boyhood and manhood is so important for a proper masculine self-development process. And the fact that we don't have that is an enormous issue because men need older, wiser mentors to say, hey, you are now a man and I see you as such in order to view themselves that way. And since we don't have anything like that, we're left in this kind of psychological limbo land where, yeah, we're kind of men, but I don't really feel like it. And you know, a common thing that my clients will say to me is like, you know, it's so strange. I look at people my age and they all look like men and they and they seem way older than me. And they seem like they have this internal masculinity that I, I don't have. I feel younger than people my age. And I'm sure the guys they're looking at and saying that they're probably thinking the same thing. It's really common. And that's because nobody has said, hey, you're a man. And we marked that with this really difficult thing that you did. And now from that place, you can go on and live your life as that man. We're trapped in this kind of eternal Peter Pan state. And you see this with a lot of men who are either just immature and irresponsible and lazy, or they're womanizing and domineering and aggressive. Um, and there's not really a healthy example of what it is to be a man, right? So beyond the loss of rites of passage, which there are some efforts being made to bring that back. And I think we'll probably see that really accelerate over the next few decades. Um, we don't even have simple examples of what it is to be a healthy man, right? Um, you guys are roughly the same age as me. We grew up with like one version or another of Homer Simpson, right? The man was this bumbling, incompetent, but good-hearted guy who kind of always screwed everything up. And luckily the wife was there to be prudent and wise and responsible and make sure the family's life didn't get screwed up by this moron. And it was either that or like the hyper-aggressive, violent, um, tyrannical male. Those were kind of the examples we have growing up. And those are really two shadow sides of masculinity, right? The underactive and the overactive. And we don't have a whole lot of examples of healthy masculinity. Like I watched the movie um, with Whitney a day or two ago, Rob Roy, if you remember that from like the mid nineties and for all the problems with the mid nineties uh, and the gender stereotypes and everything, you know, that's at least an example of a positive man who has honor, who knows when to utilize violence, um, but also can meet his wife on an emotional level and see her and support her even when it's painful for him. And lacking those examples that we can emulate, lacking a rite of passage that says, you are now a man, we don't really become men. And you have a bunch of not fully developed men running around the world, running our countries, running our businesses. And I think that's, you know, you can draw correlations anywhere, but I think that's a huge reason why we're seeing societal collapse, relationships collapse, um, relationships between the genders collapse even economic and and warfare pressures that we're seeing everywhere. I think a lot of that can be traced back to, we don't have strong, healthy men anymore. Hmm. Yeah. It makes good sense. Like that in some ways, you know, you look at people and there, there is this kind of cultural rejection of, of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you, when you have those two kind of tropes, right. That either, like you said, the, the, the overemphasized man or kind of like the underemphasized man, it's, it's like, right. To reject those because neither of mm -hmm. those are, are healthy neither of those are good or a true expression of of what we should be and so with like those gaps there we can see people stepping away from those versions and and that could be argued as being like a really positive thing but 
not if you're just entirely stepping away and not moving to like that that healthy middle expression and yeah who who are some people that you look to as like inspiration that you could say is like okay this this is someone who maybe they're not doing it perfectly but like they're a, a better example of of what we could strive to be like are there some you know for if people are listening and saying okay who can i look to as like a, as a role model in this time if it's not homer simpson or some sort of like super aggressive you know like domineering dad like what uh, what's a healthy middle ground what's yeah yeah i mean it's very hard to find positive examples right now and that's part of why I tend to find my positive examples, as funny as it sounds, in fairy tales and myths. Um, because a lot of the fairy tales and myths that survive after thousands of years, you know, the ones when, when it's like when water sifts through, you know, 100 meters of sand, by the time it gets to the bottom, it's pretty clear. And those stories that have survived for five, 10,000 years, in some cases, they survived for a reason and they they really articulate this process of healthy masculine development into the wise king which is really the highest embodiment of what it is to be a man and, and speaking archetypally um but beyond that it's difficult to find them in contemporary culture but i think what you're seeing right now in kind of independent media is these figures of healthy masculinity beginning to emerge right and so um, whether you like him or hate him, figures like Joe Rogan are doing that for our culture, right? And he's a family man. He's committed. He has good values. He's hardworking. He's disciplined. He's capable of violence, but knows when to use it and when not to use it. He's insightful. He He's curious. He embodies a lot of the healthy characteristics that you want to see in a fully developed man. And obviously that comes along with unhealthy figures like Andrew Tate being, you know, the most obvious example, who's really like the shadow masculine emerging. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because psychologically shadow integration, the first step is awareness of the shadow and then a healthy integration of that. Right. And Andrew Tate is giving that awareness to us. Mm. Right. So now we have that thing that we can now begin to integrate in a, in a more healthy way. And so um, there's other figures, um, guys like Bedros Koulian. Um, he's, he's lesser known as you nodding along, um, yeah. but he's doing something, the modern night project, which is basically a modern initiatory practice for young men. Um, and so in the independent media, based purely on demand and what people choose voluntarily to spend their time on, not because it's on the channel that you have to watch in your, in your available channels, but because that's what they choose to watch over everything else. You're seeing a lot of these masculine figures emerge, even a guy like Jocko, who's very much um, a little bit more single focus in like discipline, extreme ownership and stuff. But again, healthy guy, family, business owner, responsible, loving, caring, really that, that wise King much more on the warrior side than other people. But um it's another example of a well-rounded man who who can be soft, who can be introspective, who can be thoughtful, but who also can be very fucking scary and dangerous, um, <laughs> yeah. which is part of being a healthy man. Hey, everyone. Just interrupting today's episode to share a bit about our sponsor. We are so happy to be partnering with AG1 because really taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why, for the last couple of years, we've been taking AG1 every day, no exception. It's simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And honestly, when I take it, it makes me feel energized, nourished, and ready to take on the day. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. And honestly, that's why I love it. I like to drink AG1 first thing in the morning, which is recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. I fill up my shaker with some extra cold water and add one scoop of AG1. Shake it up, 
and I'm ready to go. And even if I'm running short on time and can't mix up my AG1 before heading out, I'll grab one of the handy travel packs. Each is an individual serving of AG1 that's easy to mix on the go, helping ensure I get my daily nutrients no matter what. It makes it easy at home, at work. It's awesome. It's so good to have simple habit that's good and good for you. And we're so happy to have AG1 as a partner because we really believe in their product and know that it works. Honestly, if there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why we've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership over your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five of those free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash more good. That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out. One of the things that I was thinking about and, and just listening to what you've been sharing is just the the emphasis that we don't have these these passages these rituals and what happens when we don't we fall into this is just me kind of making some general observations but when i you know see what my peers are doing you know people in their mid 30s what i see what 20 year olds are doing they i think when you don't have that masculine role model or that kind of roadmap to becoming a a healthy masculine man we fall into porn video games Mm -hmm. and those extreme examples like you said like Andrew Tate whether they're I think like good and bad can be subjective like shadow and and light like I think there's Mm -hmm. learning lessons from both but there's I think where the trap that we fall into is there's no we're passengers here there's no intention there's no mindfulness Mm -hmm. there's no there's no direction in the the man that we're becoming when we're just like mindlessly following the video games, following porn, following kind of these extreme ideas that we attach to, like this person's a masculine man, I'm going to follow these ideologies without really being conscious of where it's Mm -hmm. taking us, maybe just Mm -hmm. like doom scrolling on Twitter or Instagram and like allowing Mm -hmm. the algorithm to to kind of decide what kind of person we are versus deciding for ourselves. So what are what are some of, I'm just pointing out a couple, but what are some of the consequences for this path of, of kind of the lost man, somebody that's not bringing intention or passage or ritual or, or sovereignty in how they define their own masculinity? What happens to the, let's call them the lost men or the lost boys that are kind of aimlessly following a path that they don't know where it leads to? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that happens is that masculine energy has to go somewhere. Yeah. And so it it turns into its shadow form if it doesn't turn into a healthy form, right? So that that underactive or that overactive masculinity that we talked about. So underactive would be like Mr. Nice Guy, um, which is a huge problem in relationships that women are very resentful when they're married to Mr. Nice Guy. Um, and he's very resentful that he feels like she's making him be that way, right? Or on the other hand, he becomes this kind of womanizing guy who never connects, never, never is able to open up emotionally and form a deeper connection. Um, and he often treat women very disrespectfully, rudely, tyrannically. Um, and what that does to you on an individual level is you begin to wither, right? And that energy that should be put towards your purpose with intention, with conscious direction, instead kind of sprays off in a bunch of random directions. And I got a mental image I didn't want to get as I was saying that, um, <laughs> but you know, porn, porn, porn be an example of that, right? Like 
if that masculine urge to create doesn't have somewhere productive to go, it doesn't just disappear. It just goes somewhere else, right? And so if you can get that sense of accomplishment and direction and progression in a video game, well, at least you can get it there. And you're going to spend more time there than you should because at least you're getting somewhere to go with that energy. Porn, same thing. It's a release from the pressure of that energy. And part of what men need to do is transmute that energy into something productive, something that is fertile for the kingdom, something that causes growth and well-being to expand not only in their own lives, with their family, their community, wider society. And right now, men have no idea where to put that energy. And so it's wasted and you have a bunch of wasted men. Um, and they often, if they wake up in their mid thirties and they're depressed and life is just so bad, they can't take the pain anymore. And they listen to the pain teacher and they start turning things around. That's a huge blessing. If you have a midlife crisis in your thirties, you should count your lucky stars. Um, Cause what a lot of people happen is they have that when they're 60 and they don't have the energy, they don't have the time, they don't have the financial freedom to really pursue the things that they're meant to pursue and having that realization when you're 30 that you've wasted your life or even living a half-life or even living somebody else's life based on these kind of default assumptions you inherited from media and family and school and none of them are your, your own beliefs and your own values you're not living from a place of sovereignty saying this is what i believe and this is what i'm meant to do these are my highest values when you have that realization when you're 60 65 um that's a really tough pill to swallow and that's that's what often happens mm. There's there's two things that you you mentioned there that I want to pick up on. The first one, it was just a thought, <clears throat> excuse me, that I hadn't uh, hadn't really occurred. But when you were talking about you know the idea of like escape into porn or or video games as a as kind of a pacifier for these desires or urges or things that are hardwired into you know people who are men, uh, it's interesting that the the instant gratification culture that we're in right now. Like if I'm feeling like I want to have some sort of release, uh, but my partner's unavailable or blah, 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 whatever it is, then I can just like turn on my phone and it's right there. If mm -hmm. I want to escape into I'm feeling frustrated or angry rather than going to the gym or going sparring or whatever it might be, I'm just going to go and, you know, shoot some pixels on a screen and it's going to help feel better. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that those things come so easy and the, mm -hmm. the the reward system, right? The dopamine system and the reward system that's built in is is easily accessed, but then it's like cheapened versus mm -hmm. the way I think that we're designed to work, which is like hard work, process over time, the idea of like toil or labor or the delayed gratification of, of wanting something, but then having to work for it. Um, and, you know, that kind of sense of like sitting back at the end of the day being like, oh, that was like a hard day, but it was so satisfying. Mm -hmm. we've lost a lot of that in our culture because we can just instantly get what we want. Mm -hmm. And in the moment it feels good, but I think it's, it's taking a toll on us uh, as, as humans, not just as men specifically, but I think that it plays into our, you know, desires uh, and pleasure centers, maybe more so as men than women. But that was something that kind of stirred as mm -hmm. you were, as you were sharing. Um, the other thing that I'd like to ask about is the word that we've used a couple of times, the idea of sovereignty, um, mm -hmm. I think in some ways before maybe uh, 2020, people didn't think much about the word sovereignty. And then uh, admittedly so, it became a word that I kind of cringed at when I heard for a while. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, people talking about sovereignty and, and freedom and stuff. But now I, I think I've turned a corner again. I'm kind of understanding, beginning to understand like really the importance of what it means to be a sovereign person. Um, mm -hmm. can, you, can you unpack that and share a little bit about what that means to you and maybe under the mm -hmm. context of like masculinity as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so sovereignty is definitely the guiding 
principle and value in my life. And to me, what sovereignty means is the ability to stand on your own two feet and say, here I am as a man. I am the highest authority in my life, not other people's expectations, not societal expectations, but my values on my terms for what I believe is good, beautiful, and true. And that involves an element of self-mastery, of internal work, of being able to direct the various impulses and all those voices in our head that are pulling us in a million different directions. If you if you have real internal sovereignty, you're directed in a single direction, right? So there's that biblical idea where you know the demon the demon possession, you know, the, the demon's name was Legion, right? And I think that's kind of that idea of we have that part of us that wants to wake up and go to the gym and that part of us that wants to hit the snooze button. And we've got an infinite number of those versions of us. And the more that you can bring those all under sovereign control of a single entity and integrate those all into one thing, um, that's a level of freedom that isn't available when you're being pulled in a million different directions and you don't have control over your energy and where you direct it. And sovereignty is also very much related to confidence, right? Because if if you understand yourself, you know who you are, you know what's important to you, it's very easy to show up in a confident way because you're not pretending, you don't have a persona, which is a Greek word that means mask, right? You know, a persona that doesn't fit your face, right? So it chafes and it's heavy and it causes blisters and you have to take it off at the end of the day and show your wife who you really are and get all that other stuff out of you. You can be the same in all environments because you're acting from that place of internal unity. And the where, where, where sovereignty kind of differs from confidence is that confidence is more of an external phenomenon, right? Confidence is something you show up um, in a social circumstance, or you're able to assert yourself in a social environment. And sovereignty is more of an internal phenomenon where you're okay with who you are, you know what matters to you, you know what direction in life you're headed in, you know what your purpose is, and you're you're directing not only your internal world and and all levels of who you are mentally, spiritually, emotionally, financially in that direction. Um, but you're also able to kind of expand that sense of sovereignty into simple things like cleaning your room and then taking care of your house and then maybe working on saving for a better house and then improving your family's relationship and expanding that domain of control because the political definition of sovereignty is highest authority in a region, right? So the sovereign is the king or the queen. Um, and when you treat yourself as a kingdom of one and you start to manage all of the different voices inside of your kingdom and all the different priorities inside of your kingdom, and you begin to get some small grasp of that, even if it's just keeping your room clean, like Jordan Peterson always says, you can begin to expand that domain of sovereignty into ever more complex and difficult things. And you'll notice that you start taking leadership and responsibility for more and more things external to you because you've had that internal sovereignty. So that's that's a bit of a long answer, but that's that's what sovereignty means to me. Oh, that's great. I, I love that. I've become increasingly... Um stuck in my habits and like before it was like oh, I like to go you know work out I like to get to the gym as often as I can and then over this last year I've really made those things like non-negotiables and some of the ways that I have to do that is like altering my schedule maybe making other sacrifices uh, getting up early to to get in what I want to get in but the interesting like effect is that when I commit and then I am like straight up with myself and say, oh, if, if I set my alarm and said I'm going to get up, um, I have to get up. And then making sure that I follow through mm -hmm. on those kind of commitments to myself is that idea of like discipline or, you know, just like, again, like owning yourself and quieting down the mm -hmm. voices that are like, nah, just like sleep in. It's like raining today. Don't go outside and just be like, no, too bad. I said I'm going, so I'm going. And then the spillover mm -hmm. effect is like in the rest of your life, you start to feel more empowered 
mm-hmm. which is a beautiful absolutely uh, cause and effect yeah and and one of the one of the the best ways that men especially can do that i think it's absolutely important for women as well but um i think exercise with men has a bit of unique relationship because we need to we need struggle and challenge in our lives to really turn on our hormone system like it's meant to be turned on to feel like a man and if you can start discipline with what i call the three pillars of discipline which is waking up early exercising and eating properly if you develop discipline in those areas you will notice that without trying discipline begins to expand into all other areas of your life right because you those are three things that are largely under your own control right and it's always start it's always better to start small and if you start by trying to control the things that you actually can control you develop the skill of learning how to be disciplined and it starts to all of a sudden you're responding to more prepared to meetings um struggling with discipline wake up time having a decent morning routine it doesn't have to be two hours it can be 30 seconds but just something that you say you're going to do and then you do it even if it means you say i'm going to wake up before noon for the next month and you actually do it you're now developing a skill of discipline and maybe you can do 11 a.m the next month and maybe after enough months you'll get to 5 a.m or 8 a.m or whatever your ideal time is Mm. but you know having that humility to start where you're at and build that skill sustainably instead of pretending you're david goggins and you're going to wake up at 4 30 and run 90 miles and then lift weights for two hours and do two hours of stretching it's like how about you do five wall push-ups and wake up at 11 for a week and if you do that you can begin to increase the complexity if you do that in those three areas the discipline will, will just continue to expand in a consistent and sustainable way. Um, so those things I think are super, super important. I like um, kind of zeroing in on this discipline point. I think that's, that's I think, a starting point for this idea of sovereignty, masculinity, ownership. I think speaking for myself, I, when I'm not feeling full, I fall into distraction. So I'm just, and th- those distractions for myself can be working out. It can be um, just avoiding the things that require the hard work at the time. So I think uh, defining that discipline for yourself, uh, I, I like the idea that you shared of, of finding yourself where you're at, whether that's waking up at 11 or waking up at five, you don't have to be Dave Goggins. But how do we, how do we decipher the difference between action and distraction when we're trying to bring that into discipline? Because I think sometimes they can get blurred and a little bit confused to what's leading us to the best version of ourselves. Yeah. Great question. Um, and that's, that's also one of the reasons why people don't stay consistently disciplined is it's somewhat arbitrary. It's like, well, I'm just going to work out and it's like, okay, you're doing something that's healthy. And so it makes you feel like you're making progress, but it's not connected to your deeper purpose. It's, it's more of, to your point, just a distraction, like, okay, something to the, now, now I, now I can feel good. But it's like, well, if you're not turning that into something. And eventually one of those voices in your head is going to go, why are we bothering to do this? It's difficult. I want to sleep in. I'd rather do something else. What's the point of this? Right? So it's very important for men to take the time to define what their purpose is. And it's kind of, it's not necessarily defining. It's kind of a two-step process of like simultaneous discovery and defining, right? Or discovery and design, right? You have to discover who you are and design who you could be. Because if you, if you do that arbitrarily and you say, well, I'm going to be David Goggins or I'm going to be Andrew Tate and I'm going to have four, four girlfriends and a castle and whatever, um, if that's not connected to who you're deeply meant to be, 
even if you get all those things, you're not going to be any better off, right? So you have to first discover who you are, um, design who you could be, and then bring everything in your life under that umbrella. And it's, it's an important thing for goal setting too, because we don't actually get that much of a reward from accomplishing goals. We get much more of a reward from pursuing a goal, right? And so if you have a transcendent goal, a purpose, something that your life is directed at, all of your goals then become sub goals to that greater meta goal. And so you get the benefit of the pursuit without the disappointment that comes after accomplishment sometimes. So if you can direct your life again, that idea of sovereignty, everything's directed in the same place. And so for me, if that's sovereignty, um, when I'm building my own business and I'm running it from a laptop, that provides me with tremendous freedom. It provides my family um, with, with safety in the event that something happens and we have to move. Um, all of these things are pointed at my highest goal of sovereignty. And like my personal mission is to um, have as many men experience lives of strength and freedom as, as I can. And so everything that I do is in some sense directed towards that. And so even if it's something as simple as like exercising, like we're talking about, um, for me, it's not simply, well, I should probably be in good shape, right? It's, it's a very clearly defined thing that this is in line with my personal goals. This makes me a better man. It makes me better able to accomplish my mission. I'm better able to set an example for my clients. I'm better able to inspire people if I do these things. And so it's all very much under that meta goal of personal sovereignty and, and, and helping other men experience lives of strength and freedom. So there's no arbitrariness to it. It's not just merely a distraction. It's something that's very intentional, very conscious. And so it becomes much easier to do it consistently because those days where you're lacking that, that kind of internal energy, when it's all directed at something, that's the most meaningful thing I've yet figured out in my life. If it becomes easier to generate that internal motivation. So kind of discovering that mission, that purpose, is likely step one for someone that is maybe stuck before working towards the discipline and the structure. Otherwise, we could just be kind of throwing noodles at the wall and seeing what kind of makes us feel good without, again, falling into that passenger seat. Um, could be yeah. like just kind of chasing dopamine, chasing pleasure, chasing you know finances, whatever it might be without a set direction and we'll continue to feel lost and without purpose if we can't define our why of, of where we're, where we're driving this, this bus. So per se. That, that's right. And testosterone is very much results driven, right? Testosterone is to produce a particular result. And so if you're not aimed at a particular result, um, you're not going to be able to even turn on your hormonal system in the way it's meant to be turned on and to, to be the most powerful and capable man that you can be, right? Estrogen is somewhat different. I'm definitely not saying that women don't have a need for purpose in the way that, in, in um, just like men do, but men have this unique need to find and define their purpose because for some degree that's built into a lot of women, right? And and that's part of why women don't didn't historically have rites of passage in the same way that men did because they all get their period when they go through puberty, which means you can now have a child. And historically, the vast majority of them were going to have children. And that's traumatic. That's painful. It's intense. It's challenging. It's all of those things. It's kind of built in. And once you have children, you are the only one that can keep that child alive in the early years. Your husband cannot lactate, right? So that's up to you. That's an inbuilt purpose, an inbuilt rite of passage. Men don't have those things. And so without teaching men, hey, this is how to go through this rite of passage, to challenge yourself, to unlock that genetic potential that going through difficulty unlocks, and without saying, hey, find your why, even your hormonal system is not going to function as, it meant, as it's meant to function. And I do see a lot of what I consider malfunctioning men, 
Um, they and, and not only in the fact that we have dramatically less testosterone than we're meant to. And so we don't think the way we're meant to think. We don't act the way we're meant to act. Our bodies don't act the way they're meant to act because our testosterone is being artificially suppressed by, um, well, you'd know, you'd know better than I would with your, with your knowledge of health, with all the chemicals that we're exposed to. Um, all of these things are, are literally, we're, bi we're biologically malfunctioning as men on top of all of the psychological deficits that we have from not having rites of passage, not being taught how to find our purpose, not being taught how to pursue a transcendent medical um, so I really do think that men are, are, are malfunctioning right now. And you, and you can see that pretty clearly if you open your eyes to it. Well, we, we see that statistically with uh, the amount of infertility, just talking about kind of the, the libido of a man or the sexual health of a man. Like uh, we're seeing infertility at the highest rates we've ever seen. I think it's like one in four males mm -hmm. are, are infertile. We're seeing, you know, men's struggle with sexual health like at a, at a record rate whether that's due to exercise or diet or our toxins from our, the environments that we live in or stress or, or any of these things or having addiction to, to porn or video games or any of these things. Um, we're kind of seeing this, this collapse of, of masculinity and, and collapse of, of really the fertile man. And, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in that sense, if we collapse in, in, in that way, um, we see the population collapse. Uh, it's kind of the collapse of society if we're not able to reproduce, you know? It could be an extinction level event if the trend continues, which yeah. is something we should really be thinking about. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's interesting too, like uh, just seeing the the number of, of um, like ads, and of course things are targeted on your social media, but like noticing over the last year or so, like advertisements for like TRT and like testosterone supplements and things like this, because I think it is like people are starting to realize, oh man, this is, mm -hmm. this is a really big problem. And there are some, I think, simple solutions that people can start to do outside of like a supplement or mm -hmm. testosterone replacement therapy, uh, which they obviously have their, have their place, but just simply embracing the things that like we're physiologically hardwired to do is is going to help right but we're on that like i can't remember who said it but like the hedonistic treadmill where it's just like seeking pleasure mm -hmm. um but like short term and you're not actually doing anything you're just kind of like spinning your wheels of like well this is good in the moment and then the the trade-off is you know hard now or hard later and we're starting to see the benefits of like living um the easy life now and we're, we're having to face up with what's going to be really hard later is is mm -hmm. potentially like these big impacts on our on our whole society of mm -hmm. like you said, having malfunctioning men. Yeah. And you know, this wasn't a problem a hundred years ago. Um, not only, you know, aside from the fact that testosterone levels were dramatically higher, but a hundred years ago, if you were feeling kind of useless as a man, you didn't really have much of a choice, but to sit in that pain. And then after an hour of boredom, be like, well, maybe I should go out and fix that fence. Right. Right now you never have to sit in your pain. No. You can smoke weed, you can, you can, you can, you can Uber eats alcohol and junk food. You can go play candy crush on your phone. You can watch porn. You never have to sit in your pain and without sitting in that pain and learning what the pain teacher is trying to tell you, you don't develop the ability to delay gratification, to do challenging things. And on top of that, um, there's this horrendous attitude that a lot of healthy things that men should do are innately negative in some way. There's even, you know, this is this is a silly example. It's not exactly representative of society as a whole. 
but even things like right, um, linking exercise to white nationalism, right? And it's like, we're so off the deep end where we're, we're actively discouraging men from doing all the things that men need to do to be healthy. And it's not, it's not like women are happy about it. Women are not happy about the men that are available for them to date right now. Women are not happy in their marriages right now. Um, it's a disaster for everybody. And yet we're so obsessed with the idea of toxic masculinity that we fear any man who has power and competence of any kind because we don't have an ideal of what a healthy man looks like. As a society, we don't have a Hercules, we don't have an Achilles, we don't have these ideal male role models that every historical society has had. We've we've knocked them down one by one by one because you can always find something that's wrong with them. And so anytime anybody does show up with any kind of power and competence, it's not, oh, thank God, there's a healthy, strong man who can take care of us and protect us and provide. Instead, it's, oh, this guy is going to be a violent threat. And so we knock down every single healthy masculine ideal, and then we're surprised by the fact that young men are drawn to unhealthy masculine ideals. Well, we haven't left anything else for them to be drawn towards. Hmm. All right, kind of zooming into that, because I think that's really important, what you're kind of focusing on right now. Uh, before the pod, Dean and I were talking about uh, victimhood and how there seems to be almost a comfort, a desire to stay in victimhood instead of progressing to, uh, you know, to continue to use this word to a state of sovereignty or, or even to a state of happiness. There seems to be in in the world of uh, the campuses, the universities and colleges to kind of popular culture to almost claim victimhood to be an mm -hmm. oppressed person. And I don't know about yourself, but if I've been a victim of any situation, it hasn't been a happy one. I haven't felt good about mm -hmm. myself. I haven't felt good about my situation. I haven't felt good about my community. So how do we, how do we take ourselves out of the societal space of celebrating victimhood, of being comfortable in victimhood, of, of almost desiring to be a part of it and um, evolving from that to a state of independence and sovereignty and, and taking our own power, our own happiness into our own control? Like, How do we switch those norms within ourselves, but also within the communities that we are a part of? Yeah, victimhood is the most damaging possible mindset that you can have. Nothing gets better when you're a victim. And we've conflated the idea of acknowledging hardship and acknowledging trauma and acknowledging challenge with victimhood. And they're very, very different things. It's really important to be honest about the tough cards that you've been dealt, about the challenges that you face, about the things that make your life hard. It's very important to be honest and aware of those things. But if you do that from a place of, therefore, I'm disempowered and it's not my fault and there's nothing that I can do about it, you will not make any progress. And one of the things that we do in our company um, and our primary focus is helping men restore their masculinity to save their marriages. And we're really, really successful at that, which is just an unbelievable blessing that I'm able to say that. Um, but one of the things that we do and our, our sales team is trained to do the same thing is that if somebody comes in with a victim mindset and they're unwilling to accept that they might have played a role and it might not just be fate, but that they might have played a role in creating the negative situation they're in, it's not all their wife's fault. If they're not willing to acknowledge that we don't work with them because you can't, 
early on in my coaching career, I took on people like that because I was like, I'm going to change. I was going to, I'm going to change this. And it did work sometimes. Um, but if somebody is convinced that it's my parents' fault, it's the world's fault, it's the economy's fault, it's my wife's fault, there's nothing that you can do to change because victimhood by definition says this is outside of my control. And if it's outside of your control, you cannot change it. So you want to make somebody's life miserable. You want to cement people to the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. You tell them they're victims and you play that on the airwaves 24 seven, and you will get a culture that cannot get itself off the ground. And it's the exact same thing with individuals. If you tell somebody it's not your fault, it's daddy's fault. And I work a lot on the father wound. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of how negatively mothers and fathers can impact their kids. It's, it's actually where we start with most of our clients. So it's not like I'm, I'm minimizing that by any means. Um, but if it's all somebody else's fault, by definition, there's nothing you can do about it. So that means you're not going to try and you're going to get into this circular thought process of poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. And nothing good comes of that for individuals, for groups, for companies, for teams. Um, it's all bad and it precludes even the possibility of making progress. So the victimhood mindset is so damaging, it's almost impossible to overstate. Hmm. Is there a place, Matt, for people to experience um, being a, like, experience the reality of being a victim and sit in that and say, this happened to me? And, you know, maybe in a, in a relationship, like I recognize I contributed as a partner in this to some of it, but maybe some of the things that happened to me, I, I really am a victim. Is there a space for people to sit in that, but then start to say, okay, but I, uh, this happened to me, but this is not who I am. Or these are the things that have happened in my life, but it's not going to define my life. And are there like steps that people could take to say, yeah, my father was abusive or absent or whatever, or my partner did this or that, and it wounded me and I was a victim of these things, but now I'm going to say these things happened to me and I'm going to start to pull those pieces together. Like what's the do you think is there a healthy time for people to say rather than just being like, ah, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm just going to like soldier on, which might not be like a healthy reality either. Great is there question. A place to, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the very first thing you have to do is analyze your hardship with complete openness. And that involves, first of all, in many cases, recognizing the hurt that's been done to you and not minimizing it, not pretending it didn't hurt, not pretending it was okay, not pretending it was normal. Um, but really saying, how bad was this? And another group of clients that are hard to work with are the ones who are like, no, no, my childhood was really good. Like I had a great upbringing. My parents are like, my, my, my dad and mom are both amazing. Like they've never really done anything wrong. And like, I didn't really experience, I never really got my feelings hurt. I never really went anything hard. Everything was kind of just perfect. And it's like, all that says to me is you have no idea who you are and you have no understanding of who of, of, of where you came from in your own origin story. Everybody has an origin story that involves pain. And you have to acknowledge that pain, be aware of it, sit in it, allow yourself to feel it, allow yourself to play through, even if it's your mom and dad and you love them to death, to radically acknowledge how they damaged you and how they hurt you. Because no matter how good of a mom and dad they were, they did damage you and they did hurt you. And I'm damaging my kids, right? I'm doing my very best to minimize that. Um, but have I not done things that have hurt them that have made them less than who they could be? I have definitely done those things. And so no matter who your parents were, no matter how good your school was, your friend group was, you experienced pain as a child and you have to acknowledge that before you can heal it. it, it that's the very first step. 
But if you stop after, if you stop with the acknowledgement and you don't move on to taking action to change things and to take back sovereign control and say, okay, that is what happened, but I have some control over what happens next, um, then you live in that pain forever. And the purpose of visiting pain isn't to live in it forever. The purpose is to experience it until you can learn the lesson it's trying to teach you. And that's that's where we start with all of our clients. So we have a, a very specific method that I put together from um, some works from Carl Jung that were released way after his death. So basically he, he did these internal imaginary conversations with figures in his own mind. And that's what led him to all of the psychological discoveries and breakthroughs that he had that really defined the 20th century psychological movement in so many ways. They're based on imaginary conversations he had in his head. And he didn't want that to discredit his scientific work. So he didn't release that until after his death, but they're available now. And so I've combined kind of some of that internal dialogue that he did with some modern techniques like neuro-linguistic programming and binaural beats, inner child healing. And we go back and we, we, we find, okay, what are the problems you're experiencing right now? Well, where did you develop that belief that led you to relate this way to your wife or that led you to think you're not good enough or led, led you to think that if I have the Maserati, then I'll be happy. Where did that come from in your childhood? And when you go back as an adult and you analyze where you developed those beliefs, all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and you go, oh, that's not actually how the world works. That's just what I had to do as a child to get the love and affection and support that I needed. And so now I think that's how the universe works. And when you're not conscious of that, when you don't, this is a quote from Carl Jung, when you don't make the unconscious conscious, it directs your life and you think it's just fate, mm. but it's not fate, right? It's it's neural architecture that you've built up around certain experiences that you had. And it's your responsibility as a man or as a woman to go back to those memories and say, okay, from an adult perspective, from a mature perspective, what actually took place there? And when you do that, and we do it in a semi-hypnotic state so that it's much more powerful, kind of on a subconscious level, everything shifts. And I've experienced this with countless clients where after one memory is revisited in that way, and it takes about half an hour, 40 minutes, they can breathe more deeply. They feel a weight come off their chest and it's permanent. They're like, I didn't realize I was only using 80% of my lungs. Like I, I, my, my chest was constricted and I, I didn't realize I had this feeling of tightness, but it's gone now. I didn't even know it was there, but I've been feeling that for 35 years and it's gone now. And you unlock that energy center and you now have access to flowing powerful energy in you that you can direct consciously towards something. But until you sit in the pain of what happened and you fully acknowledge it, none of that healing can happen. None of that power can be unlocked. So yeah, you, you definitely have to start there. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. That's so important. It makes you think of, uh, you've probably, you've probably heard of, um, Michael Easter and his book, the comfort crisis, but yes. it's like, it's like the idea that, uh, sitting in our victimhood or sitting in, in trauma would be uncomfortable. And yet it often is the thing that people find the most comfort in because they know it and we stay where we know. And to step outside of that, to start to say, yo, this thing happened to me and it was awful, but I'm not going to let it define me. I'm going to, I'm going to try to take ownership and have that self mastery and say, okay, now what, how do I pick up the pieces and move forward? That's actually more scary and can be more uncomfortable than sitting in it. But what we need mm -hmm. is to is start to confront those things and and to move forward and to acknowledge. And and I, I like what you were just sharing. Like that's incredible. The work that you're doing is to help people uh, confront those things in, through different modalities and have them experience like what it can feel like to step 
away from that and, and not mm-hmm. be defined as victim and not just stay mm-hmm. there and feel like, well, this is just who I am and, and I'm used to this and I'm comfortable with this. So this is what, what I'll be and miss out on the whole experience of what they could have in, in a full, meaningful life. Yeah. And, and our, our nervous systems attune to whatever environment we grow up in. And so if you grew up in a chaotic or an abusive environment, that's how you experience love. And so you're not going to recognize love in its other forms. And so you're, that's why abuse tends to propagate, right? It's like you saw your mom getting beat up and you saw your dad doing that, but you also saw your dad having tender moments with you and loving you. And even if he didn't have very many of them or even none at all, that was still your example of masculine love. And so that's where you go to find it. That's what's familiar to you. And it's your responsibility as an adult to say, is that belief system serving me? Is that actually where I want to find love or is there a different way? And if I go back and unpack how I form my current relationship with love, could I then design a better system that's going to lead me towards fulfillment and health rather than just repeating the experiences that were familiar from childhood? I like this place of questioning, exploring curiosity. It's, it's something that Dean and I have been speaking more and more of is almost uh, the idea of exploring being wrong, giving space to be wrong, like going to, I, I, I think like as, as someone like yourself that has a culture that includes fitness and gym and athletics, like I think in sports, there's there's room to fail. It's, it's encouraged as part of the practice to get to a point of failure to allow for more growth but we kind of miss that in our own learnings and evolution that we need to explore, you know, ideas that might not be serving us ideas that, Mm -hmm. that um, make up our core beliefs that might actually be, be wrong, that there could be Mm -hmm. another possibility. So how do we, we get to a point that we can start to question our core beliefs to give room for possibility that we can be more than that, whether we're stuck in that, idea that love is abusive or or kind of have that child childhood trauma driving the bus how do we ask that first question to go inwards to see that there are other other paths possible questions that might be hard but require maybe the idea of being wrong to to explore the possibility of being right yeah, well, there there are certain truths that you will never be able to accept or believe in until you want to believe in them. Mm. And this is this I found this very true for certain types of spiritual truths. Um, until you open yourself up to the possibility that it might be true, you will be unable to see that it is true. And I think it's also true when you're looking at yourself, you have to actually want to know what you're not seeing and what you're getting wrong. Uh, because you will be incapable psychologically of seeing it unless you have the desire to see it and nobody will be able to convince you no number of repeat identical failures will teach you enough that you can learn that you're wrong until you want to see where you're wrong and one of the most effective ways to do this is to just close your eyes sometime after you've been through something that emotionally bothered you whether it was you felt hurt or you felt anxious or you were afraid of some upcoming event and say what am I doing that's contributing to this pain that I'm experiencing? And right away, you're going to get you're going to get answers about what everybody else is doing and how it's somebody else's fault and how, well, clearly in this case, it wasn't my fault. It was theirs. But keep asking that question until you develop a level of self-honesty and you get an answer back from the deep, shadowy recesses of your mind that says, well, you didn't really need to say it that way. Or you could have prepared better. And when you 
do that, it's an acquirable skill and you can get better at it and you can start seeing more clearly your role in things. But again, it's never going to happen unless you want it to happen. Um, but the more that you do that, the more you actually get excited. And it's a very strange thing to consider when, when you haven't been living this way, but like when you make a mistake, a little part of you gets excited because you go, oh, I'm going to learn something from this. And I'm going to, and I'm learn something new that I didn't know about myself. And when you do that, that means you don't have to repeat it, right? Because you're actually willing to learn what pain is teaching you. And I, I'm increasingly coming to the belief, and this is in part kind of my own spiritual journey and things I've been learning, but in part just experience that um, part of why we're here is to learn certain lessons. And so you can think about it in purely scientific terms. You know, your biology, your psychology has led you to make this mistake so that you can learn from it and be more effective from an evolutionary point of view. You can think about it meta metaphysically that your higher self sent you down to this earthly existence to learn certain lessons that you can bring back to the heavenly realm. Um, but the point is, when you have struggles and challenges and failures in your life, if you frame it internally as, if I was playing a game on earth and I was meant to learn certain lessons, why would I have taken myself through this hard experience? What was the lesson I was meant to learn from this? And if you reframe it that way, every bit of pain and challenge in your life becomes an opportunity to be, to come out of it bigger, faster, better, stronger. And aches away some of the sting, which is a wonderful benefit. But the real reason to do that is when you ask, what was I meant to learn from this period of hardship? The likelihood that you repeat it goes pretty close to zero when you do a really good job of that. And one of the kind of, you know, less obvious ways of doing this um, is to practice a sparring martial art. And so, you know, the, the first part was kind of how to do it psychologically. This is a bit more practical. Um, we live in a very artificial world, right? We're very disconnected from our food source. We're very disconnected from providing our own safety, right? Like a lot of us live in condos and townhomes and we get Uber Eats, we get groceries delivered. We don't know anything about how the real world operates. Our, our, our success or failure at work is whether or not our manager who we don't like says we did a good job or not. Right, that's what represents success or failure. You you might be working in a bureaucracy, and the success of the social program you design isn't based on did it actually reduce poverty. It's was it was it something we can sell easily and market easily in an election. That's so it it's we we don't have a very good relationship with with failure and with direct feedback from reality itself. Right, a farmer does. That's why it's so hard to bullshit farmers because their whole existence is did it grow or did it not grow. Right. And you can have any theory, any white paper, any academic study, did it grow or not grow? It's direct feedback from reality itself. And we lack that so much in these artificial environments that we live in that a sparring martial art is a really good way to snap yourself out of that because you can go in there thinking anything you want about your ability, thinking, well, I just see red bro. Like you don't know my mindset. Like, you know, when I get angry, like everybody, everybody's in trouble. And it's like, okay, you can think but if you wake up on the floor after somebody knocks you out, it's pretty hard to blame that on anything other than maybe I don't have an accurate view of my own abilities, right? So you get that direct feedback from reality. Every time you get punched in the head, every time you get choked out or arm barred, that's direct feedback. And so what happens is the more you do a sparring martial art, the more your mind begins to align with direct feedback from reality itself, rather than from these artificial ideas that you have of how the world works. And the more that that happens, the more that that applies to the rest of your life in business, in relationships and everything else. The gap between what you think is going to happen and what actually happens begins to shrink because you're actually receiving that feedback. 
And um, there's really nothing more effective than a, spar a sparring martial art to snap you out of any false beliefs you have about yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant, right? Because you can you can think, oh, you know, we often think oh, when I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, that's some sort of bad thing. And so I'm going to avoid trying to be wrong and just live as though I'm always right or never put myself in a position where I could be shown or proven that I'm wrong. 100%. But in those situations, in situations, it's like to be shown that you're wrong. Oh, I can get KO'd or I can get put in an arm bar or whatever. It's a, now you've learned something. I won't do yeah. that again next time. Or now I know how to defend against that. And so being wrong about, or having a, a, a incorrect, you know, assumption about yourself, then that like levels you up. But we often are afraid to go into a situation to be shown, oh man, I thought this. And now I have to admit to myself and maybe to others that I was wrong, like people won't do it. So they'll just like double down. But when you're yeah, physically- I, 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 I spent the first 30 years of my life um, avoiding failure at all costs. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because a, a lot of things came fairly easily to me. And so I could kind of skate by without much effort and without really being introspective and trying that hard. And so I got into this pattern of just avoiding failure. And that works okay in high school. But then you get in the real world and you have a wife who knows the real you, not the bullshit you. And you're in a career that's based on did you produce results or not, which is the type of career that I was in. And that hiding from failure doesn't work because, you know, psychologically, archetypally, to become the hero, you have to first be the fool. Right. That's why in a lot of these action movies, the guy starts out as kind of this bumbling idiot who's always offending people and making mistakes and and being publicly embarrassed. And then he ends up being the hero in the end, right? That's that's a signal that you have to be the, the fool to be the hero. And so you have to be willing to be bad at something, often publicly, for a long period of time before you're willing to be good at it. And nothing in our lives really teaches us how to do that. But if you're a 180 pound dude and you walk into a jiu-jitsu gym thinking that, hey, I'm pretty athletic, I'm pretty strong, like I'll be able to get by. And then my 130 pound wife chokes you out six times in a row you know, you either don't come back, so you don't have to experience that pain again. And that's what a lot of people do. Or you say, maybe I don't have what I thought I have. Maybe I have an unrealistic view of myself. And I've got to start aligning that with reality pretty quickly by actually learning. Because you can't skate by in jujitsu. You, uh, you, you, you can't skate by in Muay Thai. If somebody is roughly your size and strength and athleticism and they have training, you are going to lose. And you'll realize that really quickly. When you get in with a black belt, it's like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Like short of a beam from the ceiling falling down and knocking this guy out when he's on top of me, there is nothing that can happen that would lead me to win this fight. And that is an exercise in humility that teaches you how to start aligning your view with reality, which is so, so powerful. I, I like zooming out from what you're saying and just applying it a little more broadly of we can't get the results without doing the work. You hear a lot of people being like, why, why don't I have this? Why can't I get this? I want this. I need this but they're not doing the work. They just want the results without the work. So I think uh, if we can stack these habits, whether it's from a martial arts or discipline of, of waking up early, uh, we create habits of, of doing the work and the results are a byproduct of just showing up and, and, and being a part of the process versus just wanting the, the end goal, the finish line all the time, like celebrating the finish, the start line and, and kind of the middle ground versus just, where where we want to go and what we want to have um as kind of the the metric yeah and i'll i'll, I'll drop martial arts after this i promise but, <laughs> that's okay um, we can stay that, here that's part of why i love jujitsu so much because even with something like boxing if you're naturally athletic and strong and you've got a lot of fast twitch muscles 
you can you can do okay relative to somebody else who has less natural gifts but training. Um, in jiu-jitsu, your natural athletic ability has less to do with it than in any <laughs> other martial art. And you learn, it's like, okay, if I want to get better at this, I can't skate by on my natural abilities like I can in so many areas of my life. I have to actually go to the white belt classes with the 250-pound, 50-year-old who's completely out of shape and with the 110-pound girl. And I have to humble myself and actually do the work because that's the only way you'll get better in jiu-jitsu. It is the only way. And when you learn that, okay, there are certain things in life where the only way to get better is to consistently apply yourself and fail and fail and fail and fail until you start failing a little bit less. Um, then when you have to go make a hundred cold calls for your office job, six months later, you don't get defeated after two calls because you've deeply ingrained into your physiology, into your psychology, success comes from failing enough that you stop failing. And so those hundred cold calls, when you get rejected the first 99 times, it doesn't sting the same way because your internal relationship with failure is if I keep doing this, I'll inevitably get better. So it doesn't hurt the same way. It's not as painful to get those 99 no's before you get the one yes, because you understand that's how reality itself operates. Um, so yeah, jujitsu, um, it's such a powerful teaching tool for your mindset. Um, and aside from the benefits of confidence, and I think especially men, being able to trust yourself to at least know what to do if somebody tries to hurt you or your family, the increase in confidence that you get from that is incredible. The increase in health, in cardiovascular health, and just hardening your body and getting in better shape, those are all wonderful benefits. But um, the mindset benefit of just adjusting your view of reality to actually match reality, it's, it can't be overstated. It's so powerful. Yeah, I love that as, as um, you know, I'm, I'm six foot three and over 200 pounds and always played sports and, and pretty coordinated. So I think I've like, um, you know, been like, if I get into a situation, I'm, I'm big enough, strong enough that I'd be okay. But in reality, like if I got into a, a fight with your wife, she would definitely like choke me out in about 10 <laughs> seconds. So my yeah, perception I mean, versus it, the reality It's not to say is, that size and strength doesn't matter because like it definitely does. But that's, that's probably like one of those examples I was talking about was like, well, you can kind of skate by. It's like you're big you're strong, you're athletic. It's like, that's good 99% of the time. And so why would I bother going and doing this other thing? I can kind of get by. But then if you do have an encounter with somebody with training, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, paradigm shattered. It's not how I thought it was, right? And yeah. and, and where, where else does that show up in my life? If I have that thought about one thing, it probably showing up in a hundred other places just because- Exactly, I'm exactly. Kind of like you were yeah. saying, like with your own life, uh, you know, certain things were easy for you, in the first, you know, 20 X years of your, your life. And, and you don't want that to become a habit because I think one thing that, um, I'm really aware of as a, as a parent is the idea of resilience and like, how do we train resilience to our kids, to ourselves so that we don't give up after those first two cold calls or the first two failures or mm -hmm. whether we get rejected by a girl that we like or a job that we want, how do we, establish resilience so that we can continue to push through and know that that's part of the process versus the end point. Yeah. A couple of things I do with my kids and I, and I, I feel like I could do a lot more work here. I, I don't think I've got this figured out. Um, but a couple of things that I've done that have helped is um, celebrating failure. So 
if they fail at something instead of saying, oh, it's okay, you know, you'll, you'll do it next time. Like, that's amazing. Like, good for you. Like, that must've been difficult. Like, that must've been really hard for you. Like, I'm, I'm so impressed. And that really, that kind of changes failure from feeling like a rejection and like a failure to being like, oh, that was progress. I guess dad seems to think it's progress. Okay. It, it's okay to fail. Um, and then on top of that, this is just a little trick I saw on a reel one time, but it really works with my kids is, um, instead of saying, you know, you, you, you got an A on this test, like you're so smart. I'm so proud of you. Instead of saying you're so smart, you say, you must have worked really hard on that. Right. And then instead of attributing success to natural ability, they start attributing success to working. And so, and, and I, I'm going to butcher this, but there was something, I, I just saw this reel, so I, I don't know it well, but um, kids who were told that they um, were praised for being smart when they did well on a test, as tests got more difficult, they started doing more and more poorly. And when things got challenging and got beyond their natural ability, they got discouraged and started doing really poorly. But the kids in the other group, who when they got the same grades were told, wow, you must've worked really hard on that. When they got the increasingly difficult tests, they they started working harder to match that because they attributed their success to working towards success rather than their natural ability. And so that's another thing that I found has helped my kids kind of deal with adversity is celebrating the fact that they can work towards it rather than it's a it's an extension of just who they are naturally. It's work ethic versus natural ability. I, I like that because natural ability only takes you so far. But the the those that are truly great in life, whether it's the Michael Jordans or the Mike Tyson's, like it's Sure, they have natural ability, but it's their work ethic that made them great. Yeah, and, and that's why you hear stories like, you know, I'm not a huge basketball guy, but I think Michael Jordan got cut from his like freshman high school basketball team or something, right? Yeah. And, you know, if that hadn't happened, he wouldn't be Michael Jordan. He might have still been one of the best players. He might have still done really well, but like, would he have been developed that insane work ethic if he hadn't experienced that initial failure and overcome it? It's like, no the the potential michael jordan that could have existed wouldn't have existed we would have got 80 percent of them 95 percent of them right but it's that initial failure that taught him okay i have to work for this i can't just show up and play yeah it flipped the switch that made him who he became for sure exactly right yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. i've got an observation and then a kind of a question in a different direction just kind of maybe putting a pin in the victimhood idea. One of the books that really stood out for me, if uh, our listeners want to maybe take this away, and I'm sure you've read this one, is uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. So Viktor Frankl was a uh, survivor of, of, uh, of one of the concentration camps during World War II as a, as a Jewish man. And I'm probably going to butcher this or paraphrase it, but the idea was that um, they could take everything away from him, but they couldn't take away how he suffered. He could choose how he suffered. So he mm. could suffer. He could even, even suffer in happiness. He could take away his clothes, his family, his, his money, his muscles. Like they could take away everything, but they could never take away how he chose to suffer. So I think like just when you were talking about sovereignty and, and ownership that kind of idea that Viktor Frankl shared in his book really stood out to me that you could be reduced to almost nothing and still own and choose. They can't take away how you suffer. And I think if you can start there, really anything becomes possible. Um, maybe I'll let you kind of reflect on that and, and let me know how, how 
what your takeaways from that kind of profound sharing of Victor Frankl, and then I've got a kind of a follow up question on sovereignty from there. But I'll, I'll kind of I'll let you riff on that for a minute. Yeah, so there, there's a reason that that suffering is so central to a, every major religious tradition, and I'm I'm a, a very interested student of all religions and um, Buddhism and suffering is. Uh, you know, that's an enormous part of Buddhism is focusing on suffering and, you know, Christianity, the Christ story suffers around, you know, one of the greatest imaginable acts of suffering and suffering is where all change in a positive direction takes place. And, you know, if you're Viktor Frankl and you're in Auschwitz and everything has been taken away from you, it's like literally the only thing you have left is your suffering. And you can choose to be a victim about that. And if anybody in history had an excuse to be a victim, it was people in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, right? But he said, even then, I'm going to take sovereign ownership of the only thing I have left, which is my suffering. And the profound, powerful psychological shift that happens when you own something, even when that's on some level completely out of his control, obviously. Right. If, if every bit of his sovereignty and his control over his own existence was taken away from him in the most horrific ways you can imagine, and he saw things and experienced things that um, could crush any human soul, but he owned the only thing he had, which was his suffering. And out of that suffering, not only did he survive and, and go on to be fulfilled and happy, but he was able to share that in a way that improved the lives and the fulfillment and the suffering of millions and millions of other people because he listened to the pain teacher and the worse the pain is the harder it is to listen to the pain teacher but the greater the lesson and the greater the gift you can share with other people afterwards is Hmm. um and i think when you look at suffering as okay you know like i was saying earlier if i was playing a video game called life what lesson would i be trying to teach myself if i chose to go through this horrific experience um that's one way to look at it and another way to look at it is your suffering is the gift that you're meant to share with the world because if you can turn your suffering because the 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 hardest time of my life by far was when i was separated from whitney when we were living in steveston in different places in steveston um that was by far the 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 internally darkest period of my life and i've managed and i feel unbelievably blessed that this is the case that that experience of suffering is now my job and that's my gift to the world is helping other men save themselves from that suffering or if we can't move through that suffering in the most positive way possible and i could have easily at an earlier time in my life taken that in a different direction and chose to be like so many men out there that are divorced and bitter and hate women and everything is women's fault and women are all awful and hopeflation and all these other things um but I blessedly managed to turn that into a gift that I now get to share with people every day. And when you look back on suffering, if you make it to the other side of suffering with that kind of attitude, you can look back on the suffering with gratitude. And, um, you know, I've had some things in my life that I won't share that have happened that were really painful. And because eventually after years of ignoring the problem and suffering and being a very shitty person, I eventually did look back and own that suffering. Now I genuinely look back on that suffering as a gift and with gratitude. And that idea was impossible to me 10 years ago. I, I, I heard people say that, but it didn't mean anything to me. Um, but 
when you learn the lesson you're meant to learn from suffering and when you own that suffering, um, if you get to the other side of it, you will look back on that suffering with gratitude. Not to say you would repeat it, not to say you want other people to experience it, obviously, but you will look back and say, I have a broadness of perspective and a capacity for love and empathy that I would never have had if I didn't go through that suffering. And my life is so much richer because of that broadness and that capacity that I am grateful I went through it. No, I would never want to go through it again. No, I would not wish anybody goes through it, but I'm very grateful I went through that. Yeah, that's the that's the kicker, right? The but, but it's made me who I am today. I wouldn't be the person that I am today had it not been for that that event, that moment, that time. That's right. And it's it's wild because when you're in it, it's very difficult to see that, right? And having that perspective of, of Viktor Frankl or others who have suffered and, and taking control of that, I mean, it's wild. You think if you were to have a visual image of Auschwitz and you looked around and someone said, who's the most powerful person in this picture, you would never choose Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. he was the most powerful person mm -hmm. there because what he had was this resolve that was unbreakable. And mm -hmm. that made him more powerful than any of the guards or the generals. And regardless mm -hmm. of, of what guns or devices or anything they had, they had, they did not have the power that he held mm -hmm. in, in choosing how to suffer. And, and I think that's such a, that's such a strong lesson to say mm -hmm. is like to not be beat down and not to just descend into victimhood forever but to say no i i still have choice and sovereignty in every in every situation i'm in mm -hmm. yeah. i can always find something in this to own that's mine and therefore i have control over i have sovereignty over i can change i'm not completely disempowered yeah. you can do all of these things to disempower me but that's an internal decision at the end of the day and i and i refuse to be disempowered and as you're saying that like i just i, I felt it so much it's it's uh it's so powerful it's yeah. it's an extreme example of like what we can't control, you know, um, mm -hmm. and and owning what he can control, which in this instant was only his suffering. And he even mm -hmm. spoke of, you know, choosing to which seems impossible, but he even spoke of, you know, finding joy in suffering, which is which is mm -hmm. hard to fathom. Um, to kind of pivot this conversation, I know uh, I know it's very late for you in, in Portugal, so oh, it's maybe, all good. maybe we can. Uh, I, I think. Um, you know, hopefully this will be part one and we can have more more podcasts and more conversations to, to dive deeper into more things. But uh, kind of one question that I'd like to circle in on before we wrap things up. Uh, when I think of sovereignty, um, part of the equation for myself at least, and I don't know if this is for everyone, but is having a degree of, of financial wellness, financial ownership. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of speak to financial wellness and and what that means to you and and steps you might outline to achieve that yeah for sure um first of all i'd like to dispel with the idea that more money doesn't equal more happiness um it does right now and that's that's not to say that money will make you happy by any means it's not to say that money will make you a good person um but happiness is not always available like meaning is always available suffering and finding meaning in that suffering is always available happiness that positive elevated happy-go-lucky mood is not always available and when you have more money it's definitely easier to be happier um try being happy when you can't afford groceries for your kids or when you got to call up a buddy like i have and say hey i need to borrow money and hopefully i can pay you back on this date um it's very difficult to be happy in those circumstances and 
whether it's something serious like paying for better medical care or buying healthier food or living in a safer part of town, or it's something um, less serious like not worrying about the price of a nice dinner when you take your wife out on a date and just enjoying the dinner that much more. Um, it's really important to be in the best possible financial position that you can be in. And some people have a very negative relationship with money. And unsurprisingly, a lot of those people don't have a very good surprise, uh, financial situation, right? It, if, if we think something is negative, we're not likely to attract um, a lot of it in a positive way. And part of sovereignty is what we've been talking about, which is this internal alignment and um, control over your emotional state and not in like that stoic way where you can act calm even if you're not feeling calm inside but real equanimity which is being able to find that place of emotional calm in a genuine way not just act it out um, those are all elements of sovereignty that are tremendously important but financial sovereignty is also important because um, people can't tell you to do things you don't want to do when you have the means to go do something else right and that's true for um, friends, that's true for bosses, that's true for governments. Um, if you want to be genuinely sovereign, you have to be in a good financial position and and be able to make decisions in accordance with your highest value. And so many people, and I've been there so many times and my heart breaks for people who are there, they don't have the money and the financial freedom to live life according to their highest values. So that might mean you have to work at a job selling a product you don't believe in because you need to provide groceries for your children you need to make next month's rent right and um <clears throat> this is really basic advice but the most important thing you can do is obviously spend less than you make and save the difference um but i think we're all pretty familiar with that advice so i don't i don't really think it's valuable to spend too much time there um i think one of the most important things that you can do is develop an income source that is under your control to increase or decrease, right? So this can be investment properties, this can be a side gig, this can be a business you start with friends, but some form of independent income so that if your boss wants you to do something that you believe is unethical, you can say no, because yes, I won't be able to go for as many nice dinners, but I can still afford groceries with my side, with my side income. And there's never been a better time than right now to create a side income because at any other point in human history, um, your ability to make money was pretty geographically limited, right? But we're now in this amazing interconnected space, especially post-COVID with virtual work and with Zoom and everybody knows how to use Zoom. Um, it doesn't really matter how niche your product or your service is. There's a market for it somewhere on earth and you can connect to almost all of those people with the internet. And I think one of the most important things that you can do is figure out... Um, you're probably familiar with the Japanese concept of ikigai. Yeah, so it's the it's the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what you're interested in, and what you can make money doing. And if you can find where those things intersect, that's a business for you. And it can be entrepreneurship, solopreneurship, you can be a contractor, you can be an employee, but find the things in the world that you're the most passionate about, that you're the most interested in, that you're naturally good at, and that you can make money from, and try to make 50 bucks a month, and then 100 bucks a month, and then 500 bucks a month, and if you have an independent in income source, a sovereign income source that's just yours under your control that nobody can take away from you except for your clients if you're not offering a good product or service, that gives you a level of sovereignty and freedom that is inaccessible to most people that are dependent upon a corporation or a boss or a government to provide their income. And if you have 
a baseline IQ over a certain number. And if you have a few hours a week that you can make available, even if it means you have to wake up early or go to bed late, you can find some way to make money online or 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 even an in-person thing if, if that's easier, whether it's mowing lawns or pushing a, a shovel in the winter for your neighbors. There are ways to create your own income sources. And I think that is such an important and powerful thing that people can do. And it's really just a mindset issue that people think it's too risky. It's too difficult. I don't have what it takes. It's like you have the cumulative wisdom and knowledge of the human race in your pocket in the form of your phone, right? Like you want to learn how to do something. You don't need to go take a six year university degree, go on YouTube for 10 hours and learn from the best minds on earth. And after 10, 20 hours on YouTube, you now know more about that than 99% of people who've ever lived and you can monetize that. And once you get yourself in a position where you've got a little bit of a savings account so that you've got three months, six months of savings, you've got a couple of different sources of income that are independent from your employer or from your main job, you now have the ability to say no when things don't align with your values. You now have the ability to say, I can hire somebody to solve this problem for me with my kid's health or with something else that's less important because I have the financial ability to do that. And I think that's really, really important for experiencing not only external freedom, but also internal freedom. That's good. I think those are those are solid takeaways and like really actionable items for people because some sometimes people like uh, advice seems so difficult or you have to have means to start it. And this is like you've laid it out so simply, like you just have to have the desire, the will, and then a little bit of uh, resolve to show up and, and make it happen, right? Whether it's trading, you know, like time for dollars uh, or f creating something that can can make you money while you're at your other job or whatever it might be, but just like a little bit of creativity, a little bit of soul searching of like, what am I good at? Where do I want to mm -hmm. exist and, and what do I have to offer? And um, it's like, it's very accessible and achievable to start doing it. And even if it's just a little bit at a time at the beginning, it empowers you to see, oh, it can be done. I, like I can do it. And then it sets yeah. you up. And, and one, one more note on that. I think this is just really empowering for people to hear because one of the major impediments that people have to going for that promotion that they feel is a little bit out of their reach or starting a side business um, is they don't think they have enough skills to do that. Right. And part of this is because we exist in this era, which we're now coming out of, but We've, we we all grew up in this era of hyper-specialization, right? The surgeon makes more than the general practitioner. Um, the accountant makes more than the bookkeeper, right? And so we thought you have to get highly specialized knowledge in order to be valuable. And it's perfectly reasonable to be a generalist. And it's very easy to monetize being a generalist if you do it properly. And a great little anecdote is the story of Scott Adams, who's the Dilbert cartoonist. And he was working what he found to be a very unfulfilling corporate job, but he understood the business world pretty well. He was a good office employee, but he didn't want to do that anymore. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I can't at 30 years old or however how old he was, I can't go back to school for four years. And like, I, I can't do that. Do you have, and he looked at some of the skills he had and he's like, well, he's like, I'm, I'm pretty good at business. I'm an okay office employee. I'm kind of funny and I'm pretty good at drawing and doodling. Well, there's nothing I can really do with that. But then I started thinking of this concept called the skill stack. Well, could I combine the skills that I have in a way that creates something world-class? Could I combine being okay at office work and being okay at drawing and okay at comedy into something that's really world-class, maybe a hundred million dollar skill. And he came up with 
being a cartoonist. And he's like, well, I would bring an angle to that that most people don't office life. And I have a business sense that most cartoonists don't have. Like maybe I have a skill stack, a skill stack that's actually insanely valuable. And it turned out for him, it was a hundred million dollar skill set. And so think on your own life, like what, what skills do I have that maybe seem unrelated? Maybe it's, you know, I'm good with numbers and I'm good at juggling and I'm kind of creative. Like, could I combine that into something that nobody else can do? Because again, you don't have to capture 10% of your local population's attention. You can capture 0.501% of the world's population on Instagram. And if there's a market for that thing and you do a good job of saying, hey, I can uniquely offer this value or this product, now you have something. And if you want to take that to the next level, you can say, is there one skill that I could add to my existing skill stack that I could acquire from YouTube for free that would 10x the value of my skill stack? What if I combine my skill stack with online marketing or with sales and I acquired that skill for free on YouTube, now I can make 10 times as much money from that skill stack. And I, I firmly believe that everybody has a million dollar skill stack already, but it takes the time to do that introspection, to go through the icky guy and to say, how could I creatively combine these skills that I have into something that's really genuinely unique that maybe even only I could offer. And it's a very interesting thought experiment and people will find, they'll find out they have more skills than they realized and you know, maybe you're one of those people that you have a million dollar skill locked inside of you already and you just don't know it. I love that. I think to summarize some of this conversation uh, and just using yourself as an example, Matt, is, is having the bravery to, to go into the corners, to have discipline, to have resilience, to not accept what society is giving us, but to, to take our own ownership, our own sovereignty and and be the the driver in our life um i think uh, just you know following yourself and your family i draw a lot of inspiration from what you guys have done and oh, thank you and, so much in choosing to to live life how you guys see to be sovereign and strong and, and fulfilling for yourselves and i think you know it, it takes a lot of courage to to take the other path when everybody's going one way to choose to go the other way. So I admire your, your bravery and your courage. And I think, you know, we can all look to you for how we can do that in ourselves. So I'm, I'm grateful for being able to kind of follow your journey and, and your family's journey. And I think the work with your, you're doing with men is incredible and, and, and much needed today. And, and the work that you're doing with communities is, is also as needed. So I'd encourage you to, to keep going. Uh, to keep learning, to keep sharing, and and uh, yeah, just want to pass my my thanks and my gratitude for for your time today. And um, Dean, should we close this out? We haven't done our closing question in a long time. Yeah, should we? Uh, I feel like this is a good one to let's do it. Yeah. So uh, we we've asked often our guest um, to reflect on the on the the title, the name of our podcast. We called it uh, a little more good with uh, great intention. And we love to hear from, you know, the person that we've shared conversation with, like, what does that phrase mean to you? What comes up uh, in your mind when you hear it a little more good? Um, well, first of all, let me just say thank you for the kind words. Um, I, I I actually feel the same way about you because you started your kind of sovereign journey and entrepreneurship and going in all these different directions way before I did. And uh kind of through Whitney sharing a lot of uh, what you're going through. Um, I drew a lot of inspiration from that myself. So um, right back at you. Well, thank you. Um, a little more good. Um, to me, I think that's really how everybody should approach self-development and improvement is 
going back to what I was saying earlier, not trying to be David Goggins tomorrow, but starting with doing five wall push-ups. Because if you can do that, and then the next day you can do six, and then eventually you can get on the floor and do five push-ups, and then eventually you can do 20 push-ups, and then you can get to the gym. Um, and then, you know, you do five, 10 years of that, you have no idea where you could be. Um, but everybody wants to start at black belt. And that just means you go to class, everybody kicks your ass, you don't know how to learn anything because it's all too complex for you and you end up quitting and feeling like I'm not good enough. Um, start at white belt, be a little bit more good, be humble and build that momentum, build that consistency, build that sustainability. And you have no idea where that can take you if you get a little bit more good for a long enough period of time. I love it. I think that was one of my favorite answers to that question. So thank you, Matt. Nice. I know it's Thank super super late where you are, so I'll let you uh, yeah. get some sleep and uh, you know get ready for whatever adventure awaits tomorrow. But uh, again, just super grateful for your time and for for all that you shared today. And uh, I uh, wholeheartedly look forward to uh, part two of this conversation down the line. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Thank you so much um, for your time as well. And uh, I, I love talking about this stuff. So any excuse I get really fires me up. I won't be able to sleep for a while after this. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity too, because I, I love spreading this message. And if any of your um, listeners want to find me um, at the underscore sovereign underscore man on Instagram, we're just barely starting to roll out on other platforms, but Instagram is the place to find me. So I'd love to uh, hear from you, shoot me a message and uh, we can connect. And are, awesome. there, are there any websites that uh, listeners should be checking out or is Instagram kind of your main landing page? Instagram is the new thing. We're, we're, we're working on some websites, but it's mostly sales stuff. So if you want to get a hold of me and see my stuff, Instagram is the, is the place to go. Okay. Amazing. Well, well, thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate you. Absolutely. You guys too. Take care.